0: Hello and welcome to The Knot, a brand new three-part podcast series from Revolving Doors Agency. Revolving Doors is a charity that works across England and alongside people with lived experience of the criminal justice system to make the revolving door of personal crisis and crime avoidable and escapable. I'm Claire Runacres, your host for this series, with the help of some expert academics, practitioners and people with lived experience We'll be exploring how poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage are knotted together and how we can better respond to these complex interconnections. And don't worry if that felt a bit jargon heavy, we'll be getting into what we mean by terms like multiple disadvantage with our guests a bit later in the episode. The academics and practitioners you'll hear from in this series were all commissioned by Revolving Door's agency to write an essay on the issue, which will all be brought together in an edited collection. The aim of these podcasts is to bring those writers together to explore their research and its implications. What needs to change at a policy, service and community level to unpick the knotted mess of poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage that brings so much damage and chaos into people's lives? We're also going to hear from someone who's been directly affected by these knotted issues, which led them into the criminal justice system and ask them what they make of the research findings. In this episode, we'll be exploring knots around poverty, place, and multiple disadvantage. And we'll be looking at examples from two different countries. Joining me from Australia are Diana Johns, Senior Lecturer in Criminology from the University of Melbourne, and her co-author Jaime de Loma Osorio-Ricon, Deputy CEO of Banksia Gardens Community Services. Jaime is also in Melbourne and is a practitioner working on the ground, mainly with children and young people. And a bit closer to home here in the UK is Professor Tracy Shildrick, Professor of Inequalities at Newcastle University. And later we'll be hearing from Jarmaine Davis and finding out how Diana, Jaime's, and Tracy's comments chime or don't with his personal experience and any further thoughts he has for solutions for the issues discussed. So let's start with you, Diana. Your essay with Jaime is entitled A Continuum of Harm. How Systemic Interactions Can Multiply and Entrench Complex Disadvantage. What do you mean by systemic interactions and complex or multiple disadvantage? Thank you, Claire. When we're talking about multiple disadvantage, we talk about not
1: just one form of economic hardship, for example, or or social disenfranchisement or exclusion. We're talking about the kinds of exclusion that cut across generations, and that don't just take one form. So they're often intersecting with economic hardship. But together with economic hardship, we see things like family violence, chronic illness and disability, contact with the justice system, substance misuse, drug and alcohol dependency, gambling dependency, these kind of um, things that don't just happen once in somebody's life, but happen often across families and across generations and across places. And in terms of the systemic interactions, what we mean by that is the way in which people's lives intersect with our uh, systems, with institutions, with social structures. So every day we come into contact with other people, And if we're a child, we come into contact with adults in authority, not just our parents and our family. We come into contact with teachers, with people in the street, in the shopping centre, in our neighbourhood, with police, with, you know, sometimes children's services, family services. Every single interaction constitutes some form or, or is part of some form of system. And that's really what we're talking about when we refer to systemic interactions. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Jaime, you co-authored the essay, and it's not a traditional research project, is it? It doesn't seek to answer a specific question or set of questions. Can you tell us about the background to the piece and the approach you took?
2: Yes, well, it is definitely not a traditional research piece. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Um, I am a practitioner. I've been in the field for quite a long time. And the starting point for this piece perhaps was a series of stories that I had collected over a period of time. So interactions with clients that particularly maybe um, affected me or I felt that they were quite significant and we were collecting them without a particular purpose. And again, in my conversations with Diana and Eric, we felt that some of them could be threaded into some sort of narrative that made sense and that's how that piece was born.
0: Fantastic. Tracy, let's turn to you then, shall we? Your essay was entitled Where Next for Poverty and Equality in the UK? Can you give us a little summary of your main
3: arguments? Thanks, Claire. What I'm trying to do in the paper, I I think the main message is drawing attention to the really high rates of poverty in the UK. So we know even before the COVID pandemic that many, many people were living in poverty and all that flows from that and all of the problems that people experience in their day-to-day lives, not being able to meet very Basic everyday needs, having very limited choices. And in the UK, where there is debate around poverty, it tends very much to focus on individual factors. So, focusing on the choices that individuals make in their lives as being the cause of poverty. And really, that leads to lots of mythology around what causes poverty, because we know, in fact, if we look at the evidence, that the two main causes of poverty are inadequate social security and we know that some people will need to rely on that at some point and also failings in the labour market. Trying to challenge some of those stereotypes and myths around what causes poverty is what my paper's trying to do and I think what the COVID pandemic has done has exposed those inequalities really very openly, so we know that people on low incomes are facing greater risks. They're often in key worker positions. So the situation is really quite critical at the moment.
0: If there was a take-home message from your piece of work, what would you hope it was? The
3: take-home message really needs to be around what the actual causes of poverty are rather than Focusing on individuals, because the solutions to poverty lie within addressing the causes. And if we place the causes within the individuals and something they're doing, that leads to particular sorts of policy responses. Whereas what we need to be focusing on are those questions about social security. What does the benefit system do? How does it help people when they need support? and how do we address those problems within the labour market. So, you know, all the evidence suggests people want to work and they do work often in jobs that are unforgiving and don't take them away from poverty. So I think trying to draw the debate to those key causes is really important.
0: Thank you. Diana, what sort of lasting impression would you like your piece of work to leave? In terms of how it intersects, just thinking
1: about um, what you've just been talking about, Tracy, I think this idea that you know you were talking about this sort of myth that people's problems and unemployment and and poverty and economic struggles due to their problems you know it's an individual failing i think that's really what we're trying to counter as well this notion that people's difficulties are somehow their fault and it's it's often something a narrative that we hear you know that people can pull themselves up out of poverty can pull themselves up out of unemployment what we want to show from in our piece is that People's problems are always complex and are always related to wider social issues and are always embedded in issues that relate to those people around them, but also their communities, the society they're part of, and of course, global issues as well. So I think that kind of really embedded, nested nature of our lives is one of the main messages we were trying to convey in our piece.
2: I wanted to add something to what Diana said. I guess the one of the objectives of our piece is to really make people understand the reason such a thing as a neutral interaction. That every single interaction that a person who has this experience of disadvantage has with the system will either push them one way or the other. And that as a result of that, we all need to take responsibility for uh, ensuring that we can become as accessible, as inclusive as possible, because otherwise we're contributing to exclusion.
0: Jaime and Diana, your paper starts with a vignette about Sally. Why did you start with her story?
2: Well, I think the reason why we chose such a story, um, Sally um, is going to a health centre to get some help with her mental health. And the GP at the clinic says, good morning, Sally, how can I help you? And basically what she replies is, I am fucked in the head. And immediately the GP says, sorry, we don't tolerate swearing here. We have to terminate this appointment. And the community worker who was there with Sally tried to protest and then there was a threat to call security and that was the end of that appointment. Now, Sally wasn't insulting anyone. She wasn't attacking anyone. She was, I guess, being quite graphic in the sense of how she was feeling. And that led to an immediate experience of exclusion. uh, And it led to what we think is also uh, something that would affect her uh, seeking healthcare in the future. And it would probably affect all of her children seeking healthcare from that particular provider. And again, the reason why we chose that particular story is because you would think a a community health center would be a place that would be there to support and help people. And, you know, and it's a wonderful place, but we can see very clearly that those interactions are not neutral. And in this particular case, it did nothing to help this person.
0: And I think I found what was so shocking is that the interaction was so short, but had such devastating long-term consequences. Um Tracy, in
3: your research, have you come across stories like that? Absolutely, would agree with that. I think if in listening to people's life stories what you hear is the lack of opportunity that people you know if their lives are in difficulty in some way it's not because they want their lives to be like that and they don't want their children's lives to be like that and all of the evidence tells us that it's very very clear but the lack of opportunities to be able to move away from those difficult circumstances are what prevents people being able to move forward
0: Diana, how much of a difference do you think where people grows up makes to their future?
1: Look, this is what we've explored in this paper by focusing in on a particular place, because it is an example of what I talked about before, that multiple compounded, intergenerational, complex kind of disadvantage that people are born into and that is very difficult to shift and shake. And part of it is to do with stigma and stereotypes from outside those places and the way people view people and communities within a particular place. But it's also the way that identity is taken on by by those people. And I think the story of Sally is interesting because... What it does is focus on that one word, actually, the one word she uses as the problem. When in fact, that word and that interaction masks this whole world, these layers, these lifetimes of complexity and of, of pain, you know, it conceals. All the work that it took to get Sally to that health centre, to to seek help for her long-term pain and suffering in her own um, mind and in her own life, her experiences of abuse, her own traumatic history, you know, meant that she was deeply suspicious and fearful and um, resistant to seeking help. So the fact that she had got to this place with the help of, a, of the worker and then to be turned away meant it was... Just another layer of pain, of difficulty, of trauma, re-traumatizing actually uh, for Sally. And as Jaime said, also it wouldn't just affect her, but would also mean that she's unlikely to go back to the doctor for her own her own help. But also she won't take her children there, you know, unless someone's head's fallen off. It, it's these are the ways in which these experiences and these interactions and the effects of those have these sort of ripple effects that travel across through families and across communities and through generations. And I think those are the things that make it very difficult to escape places for children such as Sally's children growing up amid those circumstances.
0: Tracy, would you agree with that? Do you think that the place in which people grow up or live has a marked influence on poverty and multiple disadvantage?
3: Absolutely. Of course, people are faced with the opportunities that they have in their local area. And if you're living in an area where the labour market is not particularly buoyant, if you're facing a labour market where there are few employment opportunities, then that is going to shape what you are able to do. But uh, I think it's important to remember that communities even though they may have lots of problems and issues they are places where people live and they do have a lot of value in those places you know they rely on their neighbors their family their friends to be able to get by day to day and there is a danger that places become stigmatized and that we presume that people want to move away or should move away from those places rather than trying to look at the strengths of particular communities, but also address the things that would make their lives better. Tracy, in in your work, you talk quite a lot about in-work poverty. What do you mean by that? This is particularly interesting in the UK. We know that the vast majority of children who are growing up in poverty live in families where at least one adult is in paid employment. And we've really seen a growth of insecure work, work that doesn't pay enough to take people away from poverty. So I think it's very, very striking that the majority of people who are in poverty in the UK are actually in employment. And I think most people would agree that doesn't seem right you know, a lot of the, the rhetoric and the narrative we hear around poverty tends to focus on people's um, supposed lack of interest in paid employment, that people need to be shifted somehow, forced to take employment, that the welfare system needs to work to kind of encourage people towards the labour market when in actual fact there's no evidence at all that people don't want to work and they do take jobs. They take jobs that leave them in deep poverty. They take jobs that lead them into further debt. They will take jobs if they can get them, but there are clear failures in terms of what those jobs are offering people if they're not taking people away from poverty, either for long enough or far enough away from poverty to make a real difference to their lives. Diana, in your
0: work, a word that comes up is shame, you know, as as a reason for people not engaging effectively with formal authorities and services, the shame of their situation. Can you tell me a little bit what you meant by that? I think this is also a point of intersection between our two papers.
1: I think you highlight the effects of shame really well, Tracy, in, um, in terms of those bigger, broader social narratives, but also in terms of people's own private experience of poverty and, and unemployment, for example. We talk about shame in relation to the stories, such as we talked about Sally's story before, how those experiences of coming into contact with people in a fairly benign setting can be incredibly humiliating. In normal terms, you know, for you or I, going to the doctor is no big deal, yet you've been asked to leave in this really undignified way. And that is shaming and shameful. And uh, for many people growing up with, for example, what Jaime was talking about, experiences of violence, family violence, experiences of abuse, um, experiences of drug and alcohol abuse and contact with the justice system. And we know particularly for women who come into contact with the justice system, their stories and experiences of sexual assault and family violence are incredibly common. And these things lead to a deep internalised sense of shame that is related to their experience of trauma, that is related to their experience of violence and the things we've talked about.
2: What I found really striking when I read Tracy's paper was that The people who really should be feeling shame. And, you know, I'm going to talk about the UK here because the fact that there is a UN rapporteur who writes a report about poverty in the UK, I think that people in the UK should feel shame about that. Similarly, in Australia, we have had UN reports, uh, you know, describing our poor treatment of of refugees and we should also feel great shame about this. But instead, uh, we decide to make people who seek support feel ashamed.
0: Yeah. And Tracy, reading your work, I found it striking that you talked about people who are, who felt shame because they were hard up and just trying to manage. You know, we come back to this in-work poverty that creates a sense of shame in people.
3: I think it speaks to the terms of the debate in the UK. When we talk about disadvantage and we go back to those individualised explanations, which tend to stereotype people as being lazy, not wanting to work, being responsible for their own positions, which of course inevitably leads people to want to distance themselves from those sorts of narratives because people are working hard, people are trying to provide for their families, people are dealing with all sorts of complexities and struggles and they're doing that to the best of their ability. So they're going to do everything in the way that they think about their own lives to distance themselves from the condition of poverty. So I think unless we can shift the terms of the debate, it's a very, very difficult problem because, you know, if people who are experiencing poverty want to distance themselves from the condition, it makes it very, very difficult to address. So we've talked a lot
0: about the problems
3: in society let's try
0: and talk a little bit about some of the solutions shall we you know what can make a positive difference tracy did you find some areas did were you able to highlight some areas for positive change from your
3: work i think we can look at it in different ways and i think diana and jaime's paper really illustrates how excellent work can be done at a local level to really change some of the um, dynamics that are happening in terms of how people engage with different sorts of agencies. And I think there are things we can do as individuals. We can challenge stigma when we hear stereotypes, and particularly in the UK, we hear it a lot, even from people who work within agencies. I think, you know, challenging that where the opportunities arise is really important. But ultimately, and I think the UN rapporteur report really spells this out very clearly, central government has a very important role to play. The state needs to address the key causes of poverty because... All of the work that's done further down is critically important, but unless those things are addressed, we won't see real structural change. I'm going to finish by asking you one absolutely impossible question,
0: so I apologise. If there was one big or small thing that you would do, that you could do to break this cycle of disadvantage, what is that one thing that you would do, Diana? Diana?
1: One thing to break the cycle of disadvantage would be to find a way for people to see themselves
0: in the other. It's about empathy. Yeah, yeah. So developing empathy, you think, is, would be a key step. Yeah. Hi, May. How about you?
2: I'm hoping and guessing that uh, Tracy will bring a universal basic income as a policy measure. So I don't have to mention that. She's nodding. That's there's a good chance of that. <laughs> So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go for something much more pragmatic. I would like to see every single police officer, teacher, magistrate, social worker, youth worker, with very very rigorous training on trauma informed practice, uh, and I think that would make an enormous difference. Tracy.
3: Yeah, Jaime stole my thunder there. <laughs> um, I think it, it, for me, it would have to come back to some sort of basic income that if you can kind of deal with the economics, I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about would take care of themselves in some sense. So for me, it would be introducing some sort of basic income that allows every citizen to be able to live a reasonable life and not to be struggling day to day just to survive. Thank
0: you, Tracy, Diana and Jaime. Some really interesting thoughts there. A great discussion on the, the knots of poverty, place and multiple disadvantage. If you stay with us for a little while, we're going to continue the discussion in a different direction and then come back to you to talk further about it. Well, we've heard from the academics and practitioners, but I think it's time to bring in Jermaine Davis. Hello, Jermaine. How are you?
4: I'm good, thank you.
0: Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you first get involved with Revolving Doors?
4: Um, I got involved with Revolving Doors through an anti-knife crime campaign that I'd set up in memory of my friend. What happened was my friend, unfortunately, got stabbed to death in 2018. And I went to his funeral and there was three of us that used to get around together like years ago when we were younger. And one of them had moved away. And obviously, my other friend, unfortunately, deceased. The other lad, he came back from where he'd moved to to attend the funeral as well. And we'd not seen each other for years. And we ended up face to face over my friend's coffin. And I looked at him and I was just like, bro, like, what have we been doing out here, man? Like, we haven't been living. Do you know what I mean? We've just been existing in it. Like, so I made a vow that day that if I could do anything at all positive with what time I've got left and help stay the kids and the youth away from leading that kind of life, then I thought I'd do whatever I could. So I was on probation at the time when I had an idea and my probation officer put me in touch with certain charities in Leicester and then that initiated somebody referring me to Revolving Door.
0: Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and background.
4: I'm 41 years old. I was born in Birmingham and I grew up in Leicester. I went into the care system as a very young, well, a baby, through certain abuse and things that I went through. I was first in short-term foster care, then long-term foster care. Then I got adopted and moved from Birmingham to Leicester when I was adopted at three or four years old. My adoption broke down when I was about 10, 11, which then led me to go into the care of the local authority. And from there, I was in and out of children's homes, but running concurrent to that, my behavior and mental health and stuff was suffering throughout this journey. So my behavior deteriorated to the point where I was getting myself in trouble and hanging around with the wrong kind of people. And I went into the criminal justice system at a very early age, at about 12, 13 years old, But it first put me into secure accommodation. And from there, that led on to young offenders, and then inevitably adult prison.
0: What What was your experience of, say, school?
4: I got expelled at a very early age. I got expelled in the first year of senior school because I was being bullied and put in like. You know, I was in a dichotomy basically, so something I had to give, and I ended up retaliating against the people that was bullying me, and I was expelled from school. I think I was twelve, the first year of senior school, so I didn't have much. I went to junior school, that was fine, but I haven't, I haven't got much memory of that, to be fair.
0: Do you remember um, any particularly positive or negative experiences with teachers?
4: Not in particular, nothing jumps out. I think my life then at school was more focused on the negative situations I was finding myself in with other pupils and peers and stuff. So,
0: And when it comes to your peers, what kind of relationship did you have with them?
4: Oh, I didn't like. Well, it was a negative one. Obviously, um, my appearance and the way I was presented at school, due to the lifestyle I was having through my adoption, that initiated people to look down on me, ridicule me, not acknowledge me. So, which then forced me just into a corner.
0: And then you reacted.
4: Yeah, and then I thought something I had to give at some point, and I finally reacted to things I was going through.
0: And what role do you feel poverty played in your journey and interaction with, the, say, the criminal justice system and your, your personal experiences?
4: From the capacity or the se- sector of life, se- sector of society that I come from, I find there's, there's no positive feedback from older generations. The kind of environment I grew up in the only feedback I see from people older than me is, "Well, oh, I haven't got no money at work." Like, and you can look at these people. I've seen these. I've been around these people all my life, and I've seen them go get up at six in the morning and go and graft their backs off. Like I think it was Diana mentioned that um, it's not that fact that people don't want to work. Like people do want to work, and people will go to work for nine, ten hours a day for jobs that still keep them in poverty. Do you know what I mean? So I believe that. The way that um, employment is set up, I had a minimum wage job in a scrap waste management for two years. And I wasn't, I was okay ish, but I still felt like I was a one wage packet away from being homeless where I've been before.
0: Just going back to um, some of the issues we were talking about in the research, we, we talked about how important um, the place where you grow up is. And I know that you've moved around through your life, but what sort of an effect do you think about the area in which you live? has on the way in which you live your life?
4: The only role models that I saw really growing up were either successful, and I say that with speech marks or quotation marks, but um, successful business people or criminals. That was it. There's a lot of people that I know that have started their own scaffold businesses and within the, um works and trades or so to speak, but then... The other half is people that sell cocaine driving around in BMWs.
0: How did that affect the way that you grew up when you saw this, this, these groups of people around you?
4: It made me feel like, like what's the point of working? I go around my friend's house, yeah, and his, his dad's just got him from work, and all, he, all he's just huffing and puffing and moaning about the day he's just out at work. And then you go there three days later when he's just been paid, and he's huffing and puffing and moaning that he hasn't got any money left. So I'm like that impacts on you because you see that all over the estate, on different estates, everywhere you go. That's all I used to see growing up, like people's families struggling and moaning about what. And then I've got, I see that with my own vision. And then in my ear, all I'm being told is get a job, get a job. Like, this isn't making sense to me. Like, I'm, what you're telling me a job's going to give me and what I'm actually seeing for myself in real life, they're not... It, it, it's not, yeah, it's not clicking properly.
0: What would have made it better?
4: By caring about people.
0: It comes back to empathy that we were talking about before.
4: Yeah, with empathy being the main drive behind, because whatever intention you have for a campaign or a process or a support system for someone, that intention is going to determine the outcome you're going to receive whoever you're in, interacting with, whoever you're working with. So if your intention, if your first priority is to make money or to tick boxes, then they're the outcomes you're going to receive. If your first priority is to make money, then your books are going to be the first thing that are going to be...
0: Yeah. you. I mean, did you feel nameless? Did you feel...
4: Yeah, definitely. Because I was... my The issues that I was dealing with myself were never picked up on because of the way I expressed them.
0: So would you say that the therapy-informed approach that uh, Diana and um, Jaime talked about, where there were interactions with more positive authority figures at an early age, for instance, do you think that would have been beneficial?
4: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because, like I said, the way I expressed my negative behaviours and the stuff I was going through, we fear the unknown. So because people couldn't see what I was actually doing with my self destructive behaviour. Let's say I went on an assessment or an induction or something like that. I'd always get, like, mental health problems, no. Um, Alcohol, drug problems, no. Self-harm, no. Oh, you're just crazy. That's literally what I get, because I didn't fit into one of the, like, common self-harming boxes, so to speak. I was just always, like, put to one side, like, you're just nuts, isn't you? Because my self-destructive behavior manifested itself through violence. So, and that came through having not been listened to. And every time I tried to speak, because I grew up in the system and I was always around figures of authority, like social workers and probation officers and care workers and stuff and police. Every time I tried to speak, it was like, hello, go and wait over there a minute. Hello, wait a minute. Shush. Who asked you? Go and wait in your room. So I literally just stopped talking to a point. And then it got, like, when I didn't understand, because I was still, depending on what part of my journey we're talking about, but especially when I was younger, when I was, like, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, so to speak, if I got to an interaction or was given a report or something about my behavior or I was told something about myself or I had to do something that I didn't understand, then instead of interacting because I didn't, I wasn't ever allowed to interact if it was something that I didn't understand that I didn't want to do because I was scared or whatever I'd end up I'd rather f- like disagree with it and probably end up getting restrained and fighting with people and doing that that's how my behavior started to, my feelings and thoughts started to manifest themselves
0: because you felt you felt silent so you lashed out to get attention
4: yeah that's how I expressed myself
0: I wondered um we, we talk quite a lot um, with the academics about this concept of, of shame. Do you think that shame, you know, affected the way you lived your life, particularly from a young age? You, you know, you talked about turning up at school and not having the right clothes or whatever it was.
4: Yeah, definitely. Shame can play a big part in it. But um, someone mentioned that um, about benefits and where um, it's looked upon as negative within society if people ask for help, if people ask for support. It's like that's ridiculed slightly and shamed, I believe, and looked down upon as well. Same with the benefit system. If you, if somebody's on benefits, it's like oh, there's, you're a sponger or a scrounger or you listen that. When the truth is, that person might just need a bit of support at that time. Do you know what I mean? So it's never looked. The whole picture's never shown. When one of my good friends lost his job about three weeks ago. And he's back working again now. But in those three weeks, he claimed benefits. He even rang me and said, I was like, bro, I've got to claim benefits. And I'm like, don't worry about it, man. You'll be, do you know what I mean?
0: What do you think should be done to to tackle poverty and multiple disadvantage? What do you think would be the key things that would improve people's situations?
4: Tackle poverty and improve people's situations.
0: It's a huge question, yeah.
4: I think, firstly, employers need to give people an incentive to go to work. Yeah, not just, oh, I'm going to give you minimum wage, because if you don't do it, Tom, Bill, and John will do it for me instead. they got, like, queues going around the block at the job centre, people trying to get work. So just, there needs to be more incentives all round from the government, from, because like I said, the feedback from the people that have worked all their lives is literally a negative and I don't see any incentives for people to go to work. It's just threats. There's no incentives. If you don't go to work, you won't get this. If you don't go to work, you can't have this. If you can't go if you don't go to work or get a job, you won't have this. And where's the positive influence or incentives for people to go to work? If kids are seeing their parents coming back from work stressed, angry, in a bad mood, with no money, where's the incentive for that child to go to work? Because they're seeing this on a daily basis, month in, month out, and we know that the yeah, so there needs to be more positive change around how work is viewed. Not just how work's viewed, how the employment, how a job's viewed, there has to be some real substance in getting a job and going to work.
0: And we talked about your interaction with authority figures. How do you think that that system could be improved? Whether it's teachers or, you know, in the, in the prison system or social workers...
4: More vetting on before people go into those roles, and more tra- a lot more training, and a lot more vetting on the people that are managing those roles.
0: What do you mean by vetting?
4: Get into the real heart of somebody's intentions. Of you could potentially change the whole narrative of somebody's life on a decision on the what that you're going to be going into so a lot of times you hear in society when people i'm not going to say any job in particular but people can comment on a on a job that somebody does and a common response a lot of the time is oh it pays the bills i'm not saying everybody says that but it is a very common phrase or oh, it pays the bills and in certain capacities within society where you're interacting and you could potentially have an impact on the direction somebody's future goes, then I think the inventing of that person there and their retention behind going into that capacity is really examined.
0: Jermaine, thank you so much for your fresh perspective and comments and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You've offered us some really valuable insights. Diana, hi May and Tracy. you heard Jermaine's reflections there. Does his story connect with what you've been told in your research? A lot of my research beyond
1: this work we're talking about today is um, on men's experience of being in prison and released from prison. So, I, you know, um, in some ways Charmaine's experience is so universal, but of course everybody has their own unique experience too. So it was wonderful to hear him so openly sharing incredibly painful stories really about the things that he'd experienced. And I think what I was really struck by was... That he was never listened to, that he was not only not listened to, but, but shushed and told to be quiet and to go away. And I think that this is, this is part of the problem that, um, for children facing the kind of issues that we've been talking about, that the adults who are meant to be taking responsibility for them and caring about them and for them. Don't even ask them what's going on for them. They just, you know, respond in this really punitive, shushing way. And I think that was just so formative, as he said. You know, that was the root of his violence, was from being not being able to express himself and not being able to uh, be heard. And I think the problem is that then the adults around him see the violence and don't see what it's actually saying. I think this is a really universal problem as well. So I was really struck by that and also by his his emphasis on caring and needing to care, you know, and that that's it's a very simple thing. But if all our interactions were shaped by that, by empathy, by care and kindness and respect and compassion and listening, then we'd have a totally different world,
0: yeah. How about you, Tracy? How would you say it connects with your research in particular?
3: Yeah, it's just a very, very familiar story. You know, that hard start and scarring effects of what happens to young people in childhood if they're in poverty, if there are, you know, other layers of complexity, such as being in care. We know that that really, really does have implications for what happens down the line.
2: Tracy, I also thought that. He made a couple of comments about the lack of incentives for people to go to work. And I thought that in light of our discussion before about even a basic income, I think that we live in in a very paradoxical society where people who are doing the hardest jobs and the jobs that are most menial and less interesting, they get paid the least. And those of us who have really interesting, meaningful and wonderful jobs get paid more. When you think about it, it doesn't really make all that much sense. And I, and I think, you know, again, this idea that there's not much of uh, of an incentive if your job cannot lift you out of poverty, that's very much coming across very strongly in, in Tracy's paper.
0: Would you say, Diana, that, you know, the title of your essay is talking about entrenching complex disadvantage, that the situation that he described, you know, going into care at an early age, being in poverty, living in a difficult environment, going to school, being bullied lashing out that that really encapsulates that experience.
1: Yeah, I think he really beautifully illustrated the way every interaction he had with authority figures, with teachers, well, he didn't remember them he, to convey them to us, but you can imagine what the classroom experience was like just from what he did say. It sounded like every time he came to the attention of an adult, it was a negative punitive response. So in this way, it was a really, really clear illustration of the way in which each interaction, even the kind of benign ones... Uh, become negative when they're not positive, you know, in a situation like that, when a child is just besieged by, by fear and uncertainty and, and, um, having nobody to say, you know, I care about you and you're safe. So I think, um, he really, really showed how those things, our, our colleague, um, our co-author describes it as the, you know, death by a thousand cuts, the way every little interaction becomes this, you know, another cut, another, Way in which that identity of being, you know, kind of abandoned becomes entrenched and becomes ingrained in your life story in a way that it becomes part of your identity. So I think, yeah, he really, he really conveyed that beautifully. But at the same time, we see this amazing, you know, eloquent, enthusiastic, entrepreneurial capable really engaged man who who wants to do all these amazing things and was just kind of knocked down in so many ways so i think yeah he was he really
0: beautifully told the story that we were trying to tell how about you tracy do you feel that there were were you able to come to other conclusions as a consequence of listening to his story
3: i suppose it reminds me of the importance of listening to the the detail of people's life stories because mm-hmm. often stories particularly where they are complex and there's lots of different issues going on are told in quite a one-dimensional way and I think what the the conversation there really illustrated is sometimes it's the small things that can make a difference a person just offering somebody a chance or an opportunity so I think for me, it just reminds me of the importance of really listening to those close up stories in quite a lot of detail to pick up on what things have really been important to that individual. And of course, it's not just about listening.
0: It's about taking action off the back of that. Whose responsibility do you feel it is to respond to this knot of poverty and multiple disadvantage?
3: Tracy, Should we start with you? I guess it goes back to what we talked about before, that there are different levels of responsibility, you know, and and we all have a responsibility within that to play a part. And, you know, clearly um, some people have more power than others. And those who are experiencing disadvantage uh, often have very little power. So I guess it's about each individual taking their role. But ultimately, I do think it comes down to policy and government to be able to make those real structural changes. How about you, Jaime? Who would you ask to stand up and take responsibility?
2: So, I mean, I I have zero hope uh, or zero um, belief that all of these lessons that we should have gained from COVID-19 are going to be applied in in a long term. But we still should act as if those things could happen and we should still work with optimism and do our best to transform society and uh, we shouldn't give up on this battle. And I think from that point of view, we all have a, a role to play, but also we all have a role to play in our civic engagement. We all need to be part of political movements. We all need to be lobbying for governments to do better jobs. We need to expect more of our decision makers. We all need to engage in arguments that don't last uh, seven seconds. And we all need to maintain ourselves informed and we all need to study and read and be actively engaged in the public discourse. And, and it's exhausting, but it's really important if we want to change society.
0: And Diana, would you agree with that? How would you like to see policymakers respond? Listening.
1: <laughs> Listening and de-emphasizing the myths of public demands for punitive policies that divide people and and feeding into sort of um, divisive mythic kind of narratives that come from, you know, that are perceived to be out in the community. But I think very often are, are sort of imagined to be more than they are and instead bringing people together and emphasising kindness. You know, we've seen Jacinda Ardern in in New Zealand, you know, working from a politics of kindness, and and we've seen that being incredibly successful, so it's possible.
2: Um, So we actually need to change something because our current justice system is uh, incredibly broken. I don't know what the statistics are in the UK, but in Australia our uh, recidivism rate for people coming out of prisons is about 50%. So that means, you know, two years after people leave prison, they are back in there. And we know that prisons are costing us something along the lines of hundred dollars to $150,000 a year for an adult. So it's actually not a very, very good investment. So I think, you know, we really need very radical reforms. And we need the courage to be able to explain that to the people in more than seven seconds.
0: We're going to sort round things up really at that point. Does anybody have any final thoughts?
2: One thought that I think is important is that, you know, we've talked a lot about having empathy for the people that we work with, the people who face adversity. I think it's really important that we also have empathy for the people who are actually working in those roles as part of the systemic interactions, because quite often I I don't think that there's any teacher out there or any residential care worker who going to work every day just because they want to make money and people want to make a difference. And then they become part of a system that uh, is chronically underfunded. And then as a result of that, it's, it's difficult to develop that sense of perspective. And then as a result of that, if you, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you just expect that people are going to behave violently and they're going to be nasty, that's most likely what you're going to get. And we have to have empathy for people who are working in those roles. And we have to, again, work empathetically with them for them to see that there's a different way as well. And I think that's really important.
0: I think that's a very good point to make. What a great way to kick off the series of The Knot, responding to poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage. Some fascinating reflections and insights into the way poverty, place, and multiple disadvantage are interlinked, along with potential solutions. Thank you to all of my guests in this first episode. Diana Johns, Senior Lecturer in Criminology from the University of Melbourne, and her co-author Jaime Deloma Loma ricon Deputy CEO of Banksia Gardens Community Services, also in Melbourne. And Professor Tracy Shildrick, Professor of Inequalities at Newcastle University, and Jarmaine Davis, for sharing his story and a fresh perspective on the research. I've been your host, Claire Ronakers. If you want to find out more about the work that Revolving Doors do or to get involved yourself, just go to www.revolving-doors.org.uk. You can also join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on Twitter is at Rev Doors, And on Instagram, at Revolving Doors Agency. We'd also love you to rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do subscribe to the series, as next time I'll be joined by another panel of experts and those with lived experiences as we shine the spotlight on the links between identities and multiple disadvantage, and specifically the roles gender, childhood trauma, and racism play in facilitating people's journeys into the criminal justice system.